For the finest local and Victorian regional wine, look no further than Castlemaine Central Wine Store. They've got locally produced ciders, craft beer, plus a great range of everyday drinking wines at affordable prices. And they even sell gift vouchers. Castlemaine Central Wine Store, Littleton Street, Castlemaine. Monday to Saturday from 10.30am. A proud sponsor of 94.9 Main FM. The Quiet Carriage, 94.9 Main FM show all about books and authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and proudly sponsored by Stoneman's Book Group. All aboard. Hello there, and welcome to another edition of The Quiet Carriage, 94.9 Main FM show all about books and authors. I hope you're doing okay out there. Just two weeks of isolation to go. I hope you're making the most of it by reading lots and lots of books. I know I have. There is still a bit going on in the world of books as well. Uh, I got a press release during the week about the Yarra Valley Writers' Festival. And they're doing an initiative called New Release Sundays. And I'll just read a bit from it. They're celebrating writing words and wisdom across all the seasons with a new series on Sundays throughout spring, featuring shared stories from Australia's favourite authors. It's called New Release Sundays, and it will take place every Sunday afternoon at 4pm in September, October and November, and will include weekly conversations with Australian authors discussing their new release books, presented in a special online format to be enjoyed from your favourite reading chair. How good does that sound? And there's authors on there. There's authors such as Kate Grenville, Jock Sarong, Luke Horton, Ewa Ramsey, quite a few actually. And they're on Sundays. It's from four o'clock and you can visit the website yarravalleywritersfestival.com for more information on that. On to today's episode. Well, later in the show, I'll be checking in with John Walter. He's the owner of Stone Man's Bookroom to see what's happening down there at the store. First up, it's time for an author retrospective. And today I have chosen an author who doesn't need too much of an introduction, but I'll give her a little one anyway. Virginia Woolf, author of Mrs. Dalloway, To the Lighthouse, uh, Room of Her Own, and let's face it, one of the greatest writers of the 20th century by far. I've tracked down a documentary. It was by a filmmaker called Peter Hort for Academy Media. And I'm going to play some of that for you right now. London in the 19th century was a city of contrasts. There were the leisured rich with their secure incomes and elegant lifestyle, and there were the desperately poor. In between were the mass of professional people, office workers, tradesmen, people of all sorts who formed the lower and middle classes. Somewhere towards the upper end of the scale, living in the respectable area of Kensington, were the Stephen family. Virginia Stephen was born at 22 Hyde Park Gate on January 25, 1882. The tall house with its dark and narrow interior was to be her home until her father's death some 22 years later. Both of her parents had been married before and had been widowed. Leslie Stephen, her father, had been married to a daughter of William Thackeray, 
Julia, Virginia's mother, already had three children from her marriage to Herbert Duckworth. The Duchess of Bedford was her first cousin, and she came from an artistic background. Her family was closely connected with the pre-Raphaelite painters, Holman Hunt and Edward Byrne Jones, and her sister, who took this picture of her, was a famous photographer whose work is now much sought after. Leslie Stephen was a man of many and varied talents. Like his father and grandfather before him, he was a writer. He also edited the Cornhill magazine for a number of years and was the first editor of the Dictionary of National Biography, a monumental work which includes biographies of all men of note in English history. Virginia was their third child, following Vanessa and Toby, and to be followed by Adrian. This meant a household of eight children, the older four separated from the younger by about ten years. There were seven servants, all women, which was not an excessive number for a family of the size and status of the Stevens, in those days before any of the modern conveniences which have so changed the way in which people live. Through her earliest years, Virginia became familiar with London's streets and played often in Kensington Gardens, which were only a hundred yards from her home. As she grew older, there would be skating on the long water in the park. The Stevens knew many of the literary and intellectual figures of the day. Throughout her childhood, Virginia would have encountered such people as Tennyson, George Eliot and Henry James. As he talked, Henry James would tilt back his chair further and further as he became more and more involved in what he was saying. To the children's delight, he fell over backwards on one occasion, but still finished what he had to say, lying on his back on the floor. The highlight of Virginia's year was the family holiday at St Ives in Cornwall, where they spent several weeks every summer from her earliest childhood until she was 14. The whole family stayed at Talland House, which overlooks Carbis Bay and the Godrevy Lighthouse, and surrounded themselves with friends and relations. It is difficult to underestimate the importance of these annual pilgrimages to Virginia, since they undoubtedly gave her her happiest moments, in this the happiest part of her childhood. Memories of this time permeate her novels. The Waves, Jacob's Room, and most especially, to the Lighthouse, draw upon her holidays here. Virginia's sister, Vanessa, recognized in To the Lighthouse an almost perfect recreation of their parents. The father dominant but insecure, the mother extraordinarily good but almost too accepting of him. In the garden, they played croquet and cricket. This is the four-year-old Virginia, and the batsman is her brother, Adrian. By the time she was ten, her family were calling her the Demon Bowler, and her elder brother, Toby, thought her a better player than many of his contemporaries at prep school. They had many visitors, from the famous, like Henry James and George Meredith, to the very young, like the future poet, Rupert Brooke, who was an enthusiastic participant in the daily games of cricket. The children mixed little with everyday life in St. Ives, preferring their own company. But Virginia derived great joy from the physical surroundings. At home in London, Virginia spent much of her time in the tall, narrow house, to which her father had added an extra two storeys to accommodate his large household. For although Toby and Adrian were sent to school, the two girls were not. In those days, boys went to school and university, but even in such an intellectually active and enlightened family as this, girls were expected merely to acquire the necessary accomplishments and marry. Vanessa and Virginia were educated at home by their parents, 
by all accounts they were poor teachers, seemingly unable to understand how children could find difficult things which to them were obvious. Both lost their tempers easily, so it fell to the girls to educate themselves. Virginia always felt the lack of a formal education, but the rigorous course of reading she set herself must have been almost more appropriate to her eventual career as a writer. She was a sensitive child, but although she was late in learning to speak, she was very soon using words with extraordinary facility. She was accident-prone and excitable, sometimes wild and prey to what her family called purple rages. She was always the family storyteller, and indeed, she and Vanessa decided very early that they would be, respectively, writer and painter. And so it turned out. In 1891, they started a handwritten magazine, the weekly Hyde Park Gate News, which reported incidents in the household. Julia Stephen died in 1895, aged only 49. As if her mother's death was not enough for the naturally oversensitive Virginia, her father was so overcome with grief and self-pity that he made no attempt to come to terms with his loss. Virginia had her first nervous breakdown. The lot of looking after her fell to her half-sister, Stella, who took over the running of the household. Soon she became engaged. Her stepfather was not prepared actually to stop the marriage, but the prospect of losing his new prop so soon after losing Julia filled him with such despondency that he insisted that Stella should continue to live in his house after the marriage. A compromise was reached. Stella married, and she was gloriously happy for three short months before she died. In two years, the settled happiness of Virginia's childhood had been irrevocably destroyed. By now, she was lonely. Her half-brothers went to work, her brothers were away at school, and Vanessa was out much of the time. Her father became increasingly gloomy and withdrawn, and Virginia's excursions into the social world were failures, since she had no small talk. Something which probably affected the rest of her life were the sexual attentions of George Duckworth, her half-brother. It seems that his sympathetic embraces developed into something rather less brotherly. It is impossible to say whether these incidents contributed to her mental instability, but they must have been at least in part responsible for her inability to sustain a sexual relationship when she married. Virginia was also the main recipient of the emotional demands made by her father. Her resentment was tempered by her appreciation of his intellectual integrity. For support, she turned to an older woman, Violet Dickinson, to whom she remained emotionally close for some years. In 1904, Sir Leslie Stephen, for he had been knighted in 1902, died. Virginia was filled with guilt, forgetting his faults and convincing herself that she had failed fully to appreciate his good qualities. Her grief and morbidity became such that those around her realized that she was approaching madness. She heard birds singing in Greek and tried to commit suicide by jumping out of a window. Vanessa, Toby and Adrian were eager to leave 22 Hyde Park Gate, which Henry James had called that house of all the deaths. They moved northeast to Bloomsbury, which is made up of a series of leafy squares surrounded by solid early 19th century houses. Extraordinarily enough, all their relatives disapproved of the move. Bloomsbury was not a good address. This meant, however, that they were escaping from the eyes which had watched so eagerly and closely over their upbringings. Suddenly they were freed from the strict conventions of their class and age.
know it's been a long time You always leave me tongue-tied And all this time is for us I love you just because me down to the ocean the world is fine by the ocean you know this time's for real It helps the heart to heal You know it breaks the seal of talisman that haunts And so you look at me in need The space that means as much to me So lead me down That was Richard Hawley there with his song, The Ocean. And now we'll return to part two of this month's author retrospective, focusing on Virginia Woolf. In 1899, 
Toby went to Cambridge University, where he soon became friendly with some people who were members of a group called the Apostles. It had been founded in 1820, and only new undergraduates of exceptional promise were invited to join, usually no more than one or two each year. Members remained active for life, and at this time included such notable figures as E.M. Forster, Bertrand Russell, and the philosopher G.E. Moore. Their weekly discussions were supposed to be held in a spirit of complete intellectual honesty. Leonard Wolfe was invited to join in 1902. Other undergraduate members at this time included Lytton Strachey, Saxon Sidney Turner, and Maynard Keynes. All four were to become part of what is now called the Bloomsbury Group. Toby was not himself an apostle, and nor was his friend Clive Bell. But the Stephen household at 46 Gordon Square must have seemed an ideal meeting place for them once they had left Cambridge for London. They all came to the Thursday evening gatherings. Strachey was odd to look at, but witty and cultured, and later to be a famous biographer. Clive Bell, whose intellect tended to be underestimated by his friends, was admired for being a mixture of English country squire and avid lover of literature and art. He was soon to become an influential writer about art. Saxon Sidney Turner was thought by all to be brilliant, but he never, in fact, achieved anything at all. The man whose ideas they all admired most was the philosopher and fellow apostle G.E. Moore. His Principia Ethica was almost a Bible to them, with its extreme rationalism and its rejection of received truths unless the truth in question could actually be proved. Virginia first listened to and then participated enthusiastically in the discussions, and this must largely have made up for the university education she had missed. The beautiful Miss Stevens, as Vanessa and Virginia were known, would have been an added attraction at the Gordon Square house, had not most of the men in the group been homosexual. This didn't, however, stop Lytton Strachey from proposing to Virginia, and she seriously considering his proposal, before he himself realised that he could not go through with it. In 1904, she published her first article in a weekly newspaper, and was soon writing reviews and other short pieces. She also taught at Morley College, an evening institute for working men and women. Here she had her main experience of the kind of people who read books rather than write them. She appreciated their intelligence and saw how they suffered because of their relative lack of education. That she worked here for three years, when her income meant that she did not need to work at all, must be some measure of her interest and concern. In 1906, Toby died of typhoid, which he caught on holiday in Greece. Only two days later, Vanessa became engaged to Clive Bell. They kept the Gordon Square house after their marriage, and Adrian and Virginia moved a few hundred yards to Fitzroy Square. They still spent much time together, and as little as a year after the wedding, Clive and Virginia began a flirtation which was to continue for some years. She was certainly not in love with Clive. Indeed, it seems that her main motivation was her loneliness in the face of her sister's married happiness. Of course, this behaviour didn't bring Vanessa any closer to her. Virginia was a sparkling talker, not least because of her almost uncontrolled imagination. She would introduce newcomers with entirely invented descriptions of their lives and characters. In her conversation and her letters, she tended to describe in her brilliant and imaginative way things as she felt they ought to be, rather than as they were. In 1910, there were two distinct parts to the Bloomsbury group. Centred around Vanessa and Clive were an art set who included Roger Fry, who was responsible for the first post-impressionist exhibition in London. Literary Bloomsbury included Lytton Strachey and Virginia, who were still writing reviews and was working hard at her first novel. 
E.M. Forster was also a part of the circle. 1910 was also the year of the dreadnought hoax, as it became known. Adrian and a friend managed to convince the Navy that their newest and most secret ship, HMS Dreadnought, was to be visited by the Emperor of Abyssinia and his entourage. This is Virginia. The successful hoax made the national front pages. Soon afterwards, Virginia suffered another nervous breakdown. Perhaps because of the excitement of this incident, or perhaps because she thought she was close to finishing her first novel. Since 1904, Leonard Wolfe, who was one of Toby's original friends at Cambridge and an apostle, had been a civil servant in Ceylon. In June 1911, he returned on leave and before the year was out, he proposed to Virginia. Leonard Wolfe's father had been a successful barrister, but had died aged 48, leaving a widow and nine young children. Leonard did well at school and was expected to do equally well at Cambridge. He was perhaps overconfident, did not do particularly well in his degree and did even worse in the civil service examination. He ended up in Ceylon, where he was a remarkably successful administrator. Virginia, with her £9,000 capital and £400 a year income, was not considered particularly well off by members of her class. But the fact that Leonard, as a successful civil servant, had been earning only £260 a year puts this figure rather more in perspective. Nevertheless, Virginia was largely accurate when she wrote to Violet Dickinson, telling her that she was going to marry a penniless Jew, for Leonard had given up his job in the hope that she would marry him and intended to earn his living as a writer. They married in August 1912, Virginia aged 30, and Leonard, 31, and after their honeymoon, they moved into rooms at Clifford's Inn. Leonard published his first novel, based on his experiences in Ceylon, but it was a critical rather than a financial success. Virginia was continuing to work on The Voyage Out, as she had been for many years. As it neared completion, her health declined. Throughout her life, her major nervous crises and periods of mental illness coincided with the periods between the completion and the publication of her novels. She began to suffer delusions and would not eat and was sent to a nursing home. When she moved back to London, she tried to commit suicide. Throughout this period, Leonard, who hadn't been properly warned of the extent of Virginia's mental instability, was suffering too but he did eventually discover that by keeping her away from excitement, not allowing her to get tired, and making sure that she ate properly, he could keep her healthy both mentally and physically. To this end, they left central London, moving to Richmond. Hogarth House was to be their home until 1924. Even before her marriage, Virginia had been spending some time outside London, on the South Downs close to Brighton. This house, in the village of Furl, still bears the name she gave it, Little Talland, in memory of her happy childhood holidays in Cornwall. On a walk with Leonard along the Downs, she discovered Asham House. It was to remain her favourite home, beautiful and melancholy. Duncan Grant painted this group at Asham. The Voyage Out was published in 1915 to critical acclaim. No praise was more welcome to Virginia than that of E.M. Forster, who was by now the most successfully established writer of the Bloomsbury Group. For the 20 years after its publication, she experienced no major breakdowns and settled down to married life and to writing. Many of her friends from this time onwards were completely unaware of her history of mental illness. To them, she appeared lively and balanced. She was indeed happy for much of the time, thanks to the stability which Leonard had brought to her life. Theirs was a successful marriage, and it is quite likely that without Leonard's love and support, Virginia would never have been able to write as she did. 
1917, the Wolfs bought a printing press and published a small book. The work was time-consuming, but they did it all themselves and made a small profit. The Hogarth Press expanded into a major publishing company over the next few years and was the first publisher of T.S. Eliot and Catherine Mansfield, both friends of Leonard and Virginia. Catherine Mansfield was important to Virginia as the first other woman she knew who was entirely committed to writing. As their books became more successful, they did less actual printing, but for many years, Virginia spent her afternoons setting type, sewing bindings, and packaging up orders. To her dismay, they had to leave Asham in 1919, and they moved a mile or so to Monk's house, Rodmel. Monk's house was their country home until Virginia died. There was no mains water, gas or electricity, but as her novels became more and more successful, they were able to improve the house and employ a gardener. In Jacob's room, which is in part a memorial to her brother Toby, she broke with the traditional form of the English novel. The real turning point came in 1926 with the success of To the Lighthouse, after which money was never a worry. Virginia was well enough now for them to take a London house, something which she had greatly missed. In 1923, Virginia met Vita Sackville West, a gifted and attractive novelist whose family home was the 16th century Knoll in Kent. By 1925, they were close friends. Whether or not their love affair was physical is something that will probably never be known, but they were certainly very much attracted to each other. In Orlando, Virginia describes Vita's life as if she aged from 16 to 36, between the years 1586 and 1928, starting life as a boy and changing into a woman. This is Vita dressed up as Orlando. At Charleston, a few miles from Monk's house, Vanessa lived with her children. Virginia was bitterly unhappy at having none of her own. Her doctors had decided that her mental equilibrium was too precarious to take such a risk. Quentin Bell, her nephew and the author of the fullest biography of her, remembers her affinity with children. The way that she was able to join in their games without condescending to them, effortlessly accepting their fantasies and delighting them with her company. With older people who saw her as a celebrity, she seemed to enjoy her power to terrify. Perhaps she was getting her own back for her misery on social occasions when she was younger. The publication of A Room of One's Own in 1928 assured her of a place at the forefront of the feminist movement with its witty and polished comparison of the lots of men and women. She became more and more famous, and more and more people wanted to know her. One such was a composer called Ethel Smith. Virginia likened her friendship to being caught by a giant crab. 1939 brought the start of the Second World War. The Wolf's house in London was bombed, so they had to live all the time at Monk's house. This dramatic woodcut gives us some idea of the scene as German planes flew over the house on their way to bomb London. There were many pressures on Virginia. Her stability relied on rest, a calm environment, and nourishing food, and these were not now possible. The war depressed her, and also reminded her that she had last gone mad during the First World War. And finally, she was finishing between the acts. As always, writing excited and then depressed her. 
On March 28, 1941, she wrote this note for Leonard, explaining that she was hearing voices and was certain that she was going mad and would not recover. She left the house and walked down to the River Ouse, where she drowned herself.
Music, interviews, mostly music. Saturdays, noon until 2pm on 94.9 Main FM. Make it your soundtrack for Saturday. Hi, I'm Marie Edwards, your State Member of Parliament for Bendigo West. Castlemaine and district, including Campbell's Creek, Newstead, Malden, Tewton and Harcourt are important parts of my electorate. If you have any questions or anything you wish to discuss that concerns the state government, I'm here to help. Please phone 5410 for an appointment. Spoken and authorised by M. Edwards, 16 Lockwood Road, Kangaroo Flat, funded from Parliamentary Budget. Marie Edwards, supporting Main FM. You are listening to The Quiet Carriage, 94.9 Main FM show, all about books and authors. And before those announcements, we heard Richard Hawley with his song, The Killing Moon. And before that, it was this month's author retrospective, quite a somber one today, really. Very sad about Virginia Woolf. Next up, something a bit more cheerful. It's that time of the month where we check in with John Walter, owner of Castlemaine Bookshop, Stoneman's Bookroom. John Walter, thank you so much for joining us again today on The Quiet Carriage. Can I just ask, how, how are things going in this second lockdown for you and, and for the shop? Well, to be honest, Paul, it's, it's, um, it's a, well, a strange time for everybody. But yeah. Our, our local loyal customers have just been brilliant because we, we're not getting any tourists now. And um, mm-hmm. there's a definite... Um, I think people are rediscovering that they enjoy reading. and uh, That's great. Uh, yeah, the business has been quite good. We're actually opening seven days a week. From, we're opening later than we used to and closing earlier, but we are open from 10 to 5 every day of the week. Every so, day. Yeah. That's fantastic, yeah. And is anything uh, coming out that's caught your eye at the moment? Uh, well, it's pretty exciting. There's a new um, uh, novel... Um, it's a junior fiction written by a local girl called Christy Neiman or Nyman. I'm not exactly sure. So okay. A young adult. Um, it's called Where We Begin. So mm-hmm. that's going to be pretty good. And Castle Mine's always been, well, Central Victoria is a strong ABC area. So mm-hmm. uh, Richard Fiddler um, yes. has written a book on, it's a biography of Prague called The Gold Maze. So... We're hoping that will be uh, a top seller for us. It'll just be an interesting book because I think a lot of our, you know, local residents are, are interested in, in Europe and uh, Prague's one of those cities that I think a lot of people have been to. So. Yeah, I, I haven't. It's on. It's, it was always on my list, but even when I was in Europe, I never managed to get there. Have, have you been? Uh, yeah, I was like... Um, Three years ago, I went and you're right. Um, that was the busiest place I've ever been. <laughs> so right. It was quite amazing, but it's it, um, yeah. I, I think I only was there for three days, so I yeah, think you could have spent a lot more right. time there. But it has such a a lot of those old medieval cities. Um, you you look and you look, look at the brains that designed them and the architects and. Uh, yeah, the architecture is quite fascinating, and it's a city that has survived. It's kept a lot of its buildings. Yes, yes. And you're obviously a very busy man owning the owning the shop. Do you get to read as much as you'd like? No, no, I am. Um, <laughs> by the time you read publicity and 
and I'm a, what can I say? I love history. Mm-hmm. Um, I love local history. I love selling local books. I love selling people books on on the paths of, you know, the walking tracks of Castlemaine, the birds of Castlemaine. Yes. Yeah. The Jajaran language. Um, the there's a, there's a lot of great. We've actually just got back in uh, stock records of the Castlemaine pioneers. Right. Um, yeah. Which has been, I think it's been out for thirty, twenty years, thirty years. But and uh, I managed to get some more stock of that. And a lot of our new residents really have a, a passion for the the town, which I think some of us older, you know, citizens have. have uh, not fully appreciated that it is it is a remarkable town the fact that it Ballarat and Bendigo grew because they had deep gold yes um, Castlemaine at its time was the uh, richest um, oh, I can't think of the term but um, the gold was all very close to the surface so yeah. it was taken out in a short time but because we were on the rail line to Bendigo the uh, and there was enough good agricultural ground in different pockets around the district. We we managed to we we remain stable and we've always had good industry and mm-hmm. uh, when you look at, you know, towns like Miraburra, Denali, Talbot, they weren't on the main track. So mm-hmm. when the gold went they went backwards a little bit. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, mine's a good place. <laughs> oh, it's booming at the moment, definitely. And speaking of history, can we delve into a bit of your own history? And I'm just just interested to know how did you end up buying Stone Man's? Because I believe you were you were a bookseller before. Is that right? Um, yeah, when I first um, left school, I actually um, I came from the era where you know tertiary education happened for only a few. So mm-hmm. I, the minute I left high school, I started work as a trainee manager for. Stoneman's SSW, which is you know, the IGA today, and I worked mm. there for a couple of years, and then I um, I, <laughs> I did a Bachelor of Hamburgerology and was a McDonald's manager. Right, really, um, yeah. That's over 40, 45 years ago. Yeah. And then I did a cadetship with Maya, and uh, that's where the area I was, was in, in books, and... Uh, I, was, I did the, the cadetship was over three years, and, and once that was finished, I headed west and uh, managed to secure a job in Perth as a sales rep for Hodder and Stoughton. Right, they yes. Be, uh, they used to sell all the ABC cricket books, um, coronet paperbacks, New English Library. You know, we had uh, James Clavel was our number one order, author, and uh, we had the um, Harry Butler Outback book. So, yeah, that's. That's where I sort of really got into books, and then um, it took me another thirty years to come back to them. And uh, uh, prior to having Stoneman's Bookshop, yeah. um, I had uh, part owned the Theatre Royal and ran that um, right. for yeah. nine years. And yeah. uh, when uh, I went and saw the previous owner of Stoneman's Bookroom, Tracy, and, uh, yes. and it's, it's only ever had two owners prior to myself. Right. Okay. And, uh, I asked her if she'd sell it to me at the time. She had other plans. So, mm-hmm. yeah, 15 years on and we're still there. So, it's um, a great thing. I love it. I love the, the history of it. Yeah. Um, because it's not, I think it's only 50, uh, probably 60 years old. Okay. Close to, so, yeah. we need to dig out and have a proper celebration sale. I've only ever had one sale in the 15 years I've been there. So, um <laughs> That was a bit of an event, and I think looking yeah. out the back the other day, what's what's still sitting there? I think we need yeah. another sale. So, yeah, yeah. I'll keep you informed. Please do. Yeah, yeah. It's such an important part of the town, not just for our older residents, but most, more importantly, perhaps our younger residents, our children as well, because you have such a great children's selection in there as well, and um, it's wonderful. Yeah, that, that that's, that's been. It's, you know, there's not a lot of positives to come out of the coronavirus, but. I really think there's more kids reading uh, and, yeah. and parents are, you know, coming in regularly and saying, you know, that their their child's um, reading skills are accelerating. Wow. Uh, the social media thing isn't very positive a yep. lot of the time. And, yep. uh, Especially not for little kids. Can, yeah. Sorry, what's that? Especially not for younger kids. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So 
we're um, we're really delighted that uh, you know a lot of people are you know, they're very exciting their love of reading. It's uh, mm. there's plenty of books, you know. That's the thing, and even. You look at, look, we just had a couple of hundred uh, Penguin Classics come in the other day, and we wow. sort of looked and we thought, my God, we've sold so many of those over yeah. the last couple of months. And uh, it's amazing how t- you can make time to read. If you, yeah. Once you start, it becomes uh, a way of life, and it's, it's a good way of life. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. John, it's been so good to talk to you again. And is it okay if yeah, we, thank you, Paul. Is it okay if we check back in with you again this time next month? Yeah, that'll be great. Thanks so much. Brilliant. I enjoyed our talk. Brilliant. Enjoyed Barker's Creek. I will do. Thanks so much, John. Thank you. I like to move it, move it. Moving can be stressful, but at Stressless Moves, we move your belongings like they're our own and can professionally pack and unpack your cartons. Stressless Moves offers door-to-door service locally or interstate. We do a weekly run to Melbourne with single items or a whole truckload. Leave the stress of moving to us. Call Jessica or Donna on 0427 046 001 for an obligation-free quote on your next move. Stresslessmoves.com.au, a proud sponsor of Main FM. The Theatre Royal has hit pause on their planned film screenings until further notice, but tasty pizzas are still available for pickup and home delivery from Wednesday through to Sunday. 4 till 8 p.m. Phone 54721196 to order. And the Takeaway Cafe continues to serve great coffee and delicious pastries Saturday and Sunday, 9 till 12. The Theatre Royal, Main FM sponsor. And that is all we have time for today on The Quiet Carriage. A big thank you to my guest, John Walter down there at Stone Man's Book Room. Please go down and support them if you're local. And wherever you are, please dig deep and support your local bookshop, particularly if you're independent, particularly in this quite strange time in which we live in. Next week, we're off to Scotland, a place I know quite well, to chat with author Graham Armstrong about his debut novel, Young Team. And I'll also be reading from the thriller collection, Thrill Me, Uh, This will be for the last time, unfortunately, and I'll be rounding it off with a short story by a local author and a great friend of the show, Carmel Bird. I'm going to leave you now with a track by Duke Ellington and John Coltrane called My Little Brown Book. Until next time, keep well, keep safe and keep reading.
Me? Yes, you. Listen to the all-new Record Low Radio Show Radio Show. Now with all-new improved formula. Easy to attach. Fits all ears. Easy to swallow. Clear, crisp, new, staggering stereo sound. You've never heard anything like this before. Ha-ha! Available to you at a low, low, record low cost of zero dollars. Yes, zero dollars. Tune in 8 p.m. till 10 p.m. on Tuesday night. What else would you be doing at that time? Absolutely no money back guaranteed. Welcome to Main FM 94.9. Can I take your order? Yeah, what's in the Star Spangled Banger deal? That's a weekly special showcasing American music, each week playing bangers, shakes and beats from a different US state. Can I get that with a side of American history? Sure thing. That'll be Saturdays 5 to 7pm with Peter and Eamon. And you can get anything you want. The Main FM's restaurant. Do you love coffee? Do you love tea? Creamtown is a new cafe and arts precinct on Jarjawa Run Country. Serving Padre coffee and food by situation dining, Creamtown acts as a do-it-together business hub with creative, social and environmental regeneration as its priority. Open from 7am to 3pm seven days a week, visit Creamtown at 325 Barker Street, Castlemaine or online, cream.town. Creamtown, main FM sponsor. 